OK's Fisher Podcast, part of the OK's Podcast Network, featuring your hosts, Matt Strine and Greg Tubbs. Hey there, welcome back to the OK's Fisher Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Tubbs, with our other host, Matt Strine. Matt, yeah, that's me. Yes, you. How you doing? <laughs> Another day in paradise. Yeah, I'm staring at you through a screen. You're uh, only about an hour away, so this is handy to be able to do this right in our basement from the comfort of our own home with a little beverage in hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Technology. Got to love it. So this week's episode, we're going to kind of expand on a little bit of last week's episode. You know, most of you tuning in didn't listen in. Go check it out. Uh, it was episode number five with Chip Brundage, a.k.a. The Sinker Guy. But we were talking about surf fishing, and particularly in Florida, but a lot of that applies all across the coast, east coast or west coast for that matter, in the Gulf, around into Texas. We're going to kind of dive in a little deeper and talk gear, mainly what you might need or maybe what you even don't need. So... Matt's going to kind of steer us through some questions because Matt's never been down in the surf near salt water to fish off the sand. I'm about as new as 80% of our listeners. Sure. So I can tell you that you probably don't need as much as you might think to get started, right? You don't need really big, tall rods. Do they help? Sure, they do. But if you're looking at going, man, I don't have the money to go spend on all that stuff. What can I take out of my arsenal of fishing gear that would work to at least get me started to quote unquote, get my feet wet. And I'm going to look at you and say, bring the tallest rods you have because short rods, you're only going to be able to cast so far. And be honest with you, if you can only cast so far, you want to cast further because maybe you're casting and hitting that first trough, hitting that first bar, or just over the first bar. You're not maybe quite getting as far as you want to get out there. You got to wade out then. Some people are a little squeamish about wading out because, yes, there are sharks out there. If you aren't careful, you could have a tussle with something you don't want to have a tussle with. So, shorter rods, you got to wade out, you got to take some risk. It's just the way it is. You do the stingray shuffle across the bottom, through the sand, and keep walking. You get over to that first bar. Maybe you can see a little bit more because in some cases, like last year, last time I was down, we had about a four-foot deep trough when the tide went out. I was able to get through it. It was maybe hip deep. Get up onto the sandbar. It was ankle deep, literally ankle deep water. So you were casting over some deeper water, hitting a shallow spot that was probably about 20 yards wide by 100 feet or 100 yards long. And if you got past that and threw another, as far as you could throw it, we'll call it 60, 70 yards, you were in the pompano. You were in the pompano. You were in the whiting. I think we had some red drum hitting, but we could never land them because they they were bigger than what our equipment could handle. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of stingrays had some of those break us off, but that's the beauty of it is you have so many things you could be possibly hooking into there. 
you got sea monsters everywhere. So that you know, look at the ocean as it's a huge pool of opportunity, not as a big daunting task. So the I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little more basic. When you sure. go down to to surf fish, are you targeting those giant fish, or are you targeting the pompano, which are a little bit smaller? What I mean, that'll directly correlate to what kind of rods and tackle you can bring down out of your arsenal. One hundred percent. You asked the great question. That that is exactly what you got to keep in mind. You know, do I want to target big redfish? Are the big redfish even there? I mean, talking to some locals to get some knowledge on it, obviously you're not going to be able to do that until you get down there. But you kind of have to go somewhat prepared. So if you're going to go down there with, say, walleye gear, we're going to talk, we'll say, six foot six to maybe a seven foot or a seven foot six rod. You know, if you, you're using some of the stuff, longer stuff for slip bobber fishing, if it's a medium action rod, Medium to medium heavy rods are what you're going to want to bring. Um, yeah, you, you can you can definitely catch some redfish that way. The bigger ones, you're going to have a tougher time landing them. Your your equipment though will be perfect for catching whiting, pompano, smaller slot reds, smaller you know smaller black drum that might hit the surf and come up and gobble up your baits. Stingrays are, it's a toss-up. Sometimes you hook into a real big one, and sometimes you hook into smaller ones, you know, four or five pounders, and they still fight like they're 20 pounds, but you can get them in. 15 to 20-pound braid is ideal for spinning gear. If you're going to go like some of the old-school commercial guys that are down there, if say, say you do have, you know, a musky rod in your arsenal, you can use it with braid on it. You're gonna. It'll be. There'll be a learning curve on how to use it and what you're with with the kind of weights and things. But for practical purposes, I think we'll just stick with the spinning gear, walleye gear, walleye bass gear. Um, yeah, you're you're pretty much limited to some of the smaller fish. You can hook into some smaller sharks. You might even be able to catch yourself some bait to put on a bigger rod. Maybe maybe you have the ability to rent a bigger rod down there which a lot of tackle shops do do they'll rent you a bigger setup whether it's you know a conventional reel for sharks or maybe it's just a little bit heavier setup with like 40 or 50 pound braid on it and then you can go chase them bigger bigger drum and bigger reds and and you know we'll call it the the four to six foot sharks the black tips and maybe the spinners so that's it's interesting you brought that up if you wanted to fish bigger musky rods are obviously going to work so there's a little bit of a learning curve. So you, that rod tip isn't too heavy then? Yeah, that's where you kind of almost want a sensitive, more sensitive tip. So if you're you're looking at bringing a, you know, a stouter rod for pulling like heavy plastics like you would for muskies or a jerkbait rod, that rod's not going to have a whole lot of give. And I actually made the mistake of purchasing an 8'6". What I thought, when I grabbed a hold of that rod blank, that's all they had because it was during COVID, so there was nothing available but I th- thought, well, you know, it's a it's a heavy action rod. If I get bigger fish, because I kept getting broken off, I had another reel set up with forty pound braid. Actually, I think it was sixty pound braid, so it was more than heavy enough. But the rod tip was terribly stiff and not very sensitive. So if I did have smaller fish like pompano or whiting, you know, biting on those shrimp that I had put out there, it uh, 
it, I wasn't seeing the bite, and it was just too heavy of a setup to really get a good feel of the fish. And then you don't appreciate the fight that they give either. Sure. Um, be quite honest with you, I think my favorite rod out of my lighter weight stuff was my eight foot six steelhead rod. And some guys have, you know, they steelhead fish and they have steelhead rods. That eight foot six is a, a medium heavy. It's good up to three quarter ounce weight or three three quarter ounce lures. I was lobbing two ounce pyramid sinkers. I think I hooked a three ounce pyramid sinker to it. It grunts a little bit. You got to be careful, you know, because if you just go and tug on it real hard, you will break the tip of the rod. And then two, if you're fishing with braid and those lighter rods, if you've ever wrapped the tip up in braid and give it a tug, that braid is like a razor blade. It'll it'll cut right through the rod. Mm-hmm. So you got to be real careful with that stuff, um, especially when you're pulling heavier weights like those three ounce pyramids or anything bigger, or if you decide to give a, a Sputnik sinker a try, those things really grab bottom. That medium, medium heavy rod might not be enough. You know, steelhead rod, walleye rod would not be enough backbone to pull that off without causing damage to some gear. Sure. So basically, leave the musky stuff at home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you had one that was that had just enough bow and give to it, if you had like a fiberglass rod for like you would for pulling bigger crankbaits or suckers or something like that, like an eight foot, eight foot six, that might be an okay rod for you know fishing like live croakers and pinfish and stuff, just like we would for musky and pike up here. You're using like a Carolina rig. Now we're going to get into rigs a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> but basically a heavier weight that slides and then, you know, a length of leader with a circle hook to, to be able to hook your, your bait to. Sure. So let's just put rods aside for one second <clears throat> or all together if you're done talking about rods. Sure. We can be done um, talking about that. <laughs> Don't so we're basically we're, we're shooting walleye slash steelhead river fishing combo stuff. Yeah. Um, and not a bait caster or traditional we're looking at spinning reels so what you know it's the ocean it's huge you got thousands of miles fish that scream and run faster than most fish up here how big of a reel are you putting on your stuff is it comparable for stuff up here yeah i think the smallest you want to mess with and let's be honest this is going to be kind of beach specific if you got an area where the beach is longer, meaning it it's a long ways out before you hit deeper water, and by deeper water, I would say you're probably looking at eight, ten feet or more. Um, that's where you want the even bigger reels to pack on more line to be able to get out there, and less waiting you have to do. And then hence comes in the longer rod. I know we didn't want to talk about that, but that's <laughs> had to go back. Had, there, had, had to go back there. That's that's where the the ten to twelve footers come into play. Sure, But if you, like where we're going, Gulf of Mexico, you know, the panhandle, the beach is short there. You can get away with lighter gear. You can get away with the 8-foot-6, probably to 10-foot rods at the very most. Um, but you can still be effective with that 7, you know, 6-foot-6 six six to fish the trough for whiting. A little bit longer rod. I would say don't go, some guys might disagree, but I think a, a 2,500 to 3,000 would be like your close rod. And for further cast, you're looking at like a 4,000 to 5,000 rod or 5,000 reel. 
the more braid you can pack on that thing, the better. Because if you say you do hook into a big red and you want a, a fighting chance at getting it in, I, I I think 300 yards of of line on a reel is probably reasonable. Okay. Where you know you'll be able to you have a fighting chance of getting into one. So, like some of my four thousands, I've got three different four thousands sitting here in front of me. I have a Daiwa BG four thousand, which is unlike most of the four thousands on the market. The spool the spool is enormous. Um, I have a Pissifun Captain series. That one twenty pound braid I can fit just under three hundred yards. It's like right there. It's just about at 300. I think it's like 290 yards. Close enough. If I see fish hitting the surface, I'll use that as my casting reel to throw maybe a, a plastic or a spoon or something. Then I have a Shimano Symmetry in a 4,000, and that one holds even less line. But that one is a great reel because it has enough oomph that I can get enough line out there. It has the drag power to turn fish. Um, and it, uh, it's pretty buttery smooth and I've had it for years. It, it's been pretty reliable. I like that you said drag. Cause that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a musky guy. I'm shooting for real high drag reels, yeah. uh, high poundage drag reels. Do you need that down there? I don't think you do. I mean, you do to be able to get, you know, we were talking before, before we got on here, like the higher poundage allows you to maybe move your bait well the higher poundage is also going to allow you to yank that heavier sinker off the bottom if you are running heavier sinkers so i would say a reel on the bottom end it's all relative to what you're fishing and where you know your close reel honestly 12 pounds of drag is probably enough to throw a half to one ounce egg sinker with a fish they call it a fish finder rig it's a carolina rig but a slip sinker rig slip mm-hmm. sinker barrel swivel length of leader, circle hook, shrimp, whatever you want to put on there. Throw that real close. We're talking maybe 30 yards off the beach. That's going to land any whiting. Whiting don't get any bigger than a, a keeper-sized walleye. You know, you, a, a real big whiting, I would have to say my biggest whiting is 16 inches, and that's a pretty good-sized whiting. They fight good, but they're they're very manageable on a walleye rod setup. Super manageable. Uh, Pompano. Those guys, if you get into some big ones, you can get in some five-pounders. Uh, those are a 20-inch fish. Uh, the only thing I can compare them to is a smallmouth with an attitude. Uh, the, <laughs> way they, the way they swim, man, those things, like, they'll, they'll work the drag on a 4,000 reel, you know, depending on which reel it is. Like that Shimano, it, it's got just the right amount of drag for it. I want to say that reel might have 15 pounds of drag in it, and that's, that's plenty for those fish. It gives them some running room. You can pull heavier sinkers, we'll say maybe up to a four ounce pyramid, two to three ounce Sputnik, and three ounce Sputnik is a pretty heavy, heavy tug. But you also need the rod to back it up. Uh, but step up into that Pissifun reel, that thing's got 24 pounds of drag in it. That's a lot. That's, that's yeah, crazy. That's pretty crazy for a little 4,000 reel that doesn't weigh a whole lot uh, that captain series has 24 pounds of drag that would be a great rod for you know inshore fish and redfish like in sloughs and things in bayous um throwing plastics maybe throwing some top water plugs it would be perfect for that 
and then you got the the Mac Daddy of of the uh, the BG four thousand Daiwa, which has twenty six pounds of drag in it and a ridiculously large spool. I think I can put almost four hundred yards of twenty uh, pound braid on it. Hmm. Uh, if I look at it here, yeah, three hundred and seventy yards. They rated for for of twenty pound braid. And you can land a lot on 20-pound braid. If you're doing a lot of bait casting, 20 pounds great. If you're casting close and not going over a lot of sandbars, 20 pounds also great. When you're casting over sandbars, 20-pound tends to fall apart after a few runs through that, through that sandbar. That sand really tears up the line. Well, it tears up everything, not just the line. Yeah, but- yeah, yeah. The, you're trying to fish 20-pound line to be able to cast longer distances and also have some abrasion resistance to be able to cut the water. And if you're casting that longer distance, that's less stretch. It's it's just a good all-around line, especially if you're fishing smaller fish. But if you're running into redfish and bigger stingrays that are all of a sudden dragging you through the sand and they're breaking you off, you need to step up a little bit. And that's where I would tell you, look at getting into something bigger, a 4,500 or a 5,000 series reel that can pack on 30 to 40 pound braid. Sure. So so basically to get started out there, you don't need anything fancy. No. You can, you can go out there with, you know, a little bit bigger walleye setup or even, you know, a bass setup for flipping that as long as you had a little bit of length in the rod. Absolutely. Yeah. Have, have, you know, that seven foot rod or slightly taller. Again, you can go a little bit shorter if you, that that's all you have, but it, nothing else. It's an excuse to go to the tackle shop and buy another combo. <laughs> <laughs> I always need an excuse for more rods. So. Right. More rods, more reels. Yeah. Um, but this year I am stepping into some bigger stuff. Um, I scooped up a couple 4,500s. I got a 6,500 on the way. Um, the 4,500s have 26, 28 pounds of drag, something like that. And then the 6,500 has 33 pounds of drag, and I can put, uh, I think I'm going to run 60-pound test line on that, and I'll be able to fit just about 300 yards on there, which if I'm, if I'm going to chase big sharks, that's not the way to go. If I'm chasing the, the six-foot and smaller sharks, the bonnet heads, the spinners and, and black tips and all that fun stuff, then I'm going to be, I'll be fine. That, that, that reel will take care of that, no problem. If I hook into a monster black jump or a, or, you know, a redfish, it'll handle them, no problem. Sure. Plenty I mean, you could, power. I mean, you could catch a muskie on a pan fishing rod. Just, you just got to tire them out and right. hopefully your line doesn't break. So, right. But what we got fighting us in the surf is sandbars. Sandbars, and then you do hook a shark, that skin is super, super rough. It's like sandpaper. It is like sandpaper. And, I mean, you can go online and see some of the demos they have, but guys have tested braid versus mono versus uh, fluorocarbon. What they do is they set up uh, a piece of PVC, with sandpaper on it we'll call it 200 grit sandpaper something equivalent to what a shark skin is like and you know they'll put a weight on it 
according to whatever test that line is, if it's 30-pound test, they'll put a 30-pound weight on it. And what they'll do is they'll just take that piece of PVC and go back and forth with it and see how many times they go back and forth with it before the line breaks. Braid almost breaks instantly. It doesn't even get a half a revolution before it pops with 30 pounds of pressure under it. Monofilament is usually the next one, and then your fluorocarbon goes after that. It's quite a bit more, actually. You get, they get quite a few revolutions on it before it finally breaks. So just as an abrasion test, mono and fluoro actually hold up better. So with that being said, do you spool up any of yours with strictly mono or strictly fluoro? So this year, I am going to go down there with a six, couple of 6,500C3 bait casters. I know we're, we're throwing a hook in here. <laughs> but those are spooled with monofilament for two reasons. One, they are more abrasion resistant. Two, they cast better. It just casts better with, with monofilament on there, especially when you're slinging heavy weights into, into the surf and into the wind. You want monofilament, it's just easier to control than braid. You you blow up a reel with braid on it, you, you might as well throw it in the garbage. It's it's going to be a, a nightmare to try and get it apart while you're out in the sand, out in the sand and, and trying to get out fishing. Um, those I'm going to run, I got one bigger one set up with a 20-pound test, trialing big game, and then the other one is 12-pound test, trialing big game. And then I run a shock leader of... of uh, braid on it so there is some braid to it but if you were to you know say you were fighting conditions where you needed a three ounce sputnik sinker and you had a 6500 c3 all spooled up with 12 pound mono well if you you know went to throw and say you didn't have the spool set to free spool for casting <laughs> you're gonna watch that weight go flying you know it's it's gonna be sailing a long way so you need a shock leader to kind of help deaden the blow and and be able to take that punishment of casting heavy weights. So I, I've got like 30 feet of 50-pound braid wound on to the end where I will use to cast that. That's my shock leader. And then after that, it'll be nothing but 12-pound mono. It's interesting. Yeah. That, that's that's really interesting. Usually you hear a braid and then you tie a mono leader on or a floral leader on. Right. I never, never actually heard of that before. It's interesting. Yeah, it's something new I learned talking to Chip, of course. Um Chip would know because he's been doing it so long, mm-hmm. but it all makes sense once you're out there and doing it. Like as soon as you fling a weight off, you're going to tie another one on and maybe you, you get a couple of lucky casts in or whatever. And it just, to yank them off the bottom too, you need almost like something, something a little more rigid to be able to absorb some of that shock because the mono will stretch. Oh yeah, for sure. It'll stretch a bunch before it finally kind of bungees back. And so it kind of, having that shock leader helps you retrieve the weight off the bottom as well. Hmm. So I guess my next question kind of leading off of that stuff is you are bringing basically a small tackle store down with you of rods and reels. (laughs) How many rods are you allowed to have set up? That's an interesting question. And I, you know, here in Wisconsin, we're used to running three rods a piece, you know, if we're really searching for fish, we're going to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. In Florida, the state of Florida, ocean fishing, you can have as many rods as you want. Really? There's no limit. Hmm. Yeah. And, but that's one of those things where if we were going to Georgia, that would probably change. 
We go to the Carolinas, that's going to change. We go to Texas, it'll be different. Alabama, same way. State-specific? So, yeah, it's state-specific. Always look at your regs. I've I've read the regs through. Every time I go down, I'm, I'm constantly panning through the regs. Um, for sharks, here, here's another little hook. For sharks, whether you're a non-resident or a resident, they want you to take a course. FWC wants you to take a course to properly handle sharks, to know what gear that you need to have, and it, you get a certificate when you're done. I actually completed it. It wasn't hard at all. You go through, you read, you listen, you watch, you take the test, you pass it. They send you a certificate online in your via email. You take that certificate. It gives you a number, and then when you go to buy your license, you give them that number to get your shark permit. Once you do that, then... You need to look at the regulations. I mean, they go through it all, what species you can keep, what you can't, and some of them have legal lengths on them, some of them don't. So you do your diligence and you study all that and be aware of what you've got. If you're not sure what it is, treat it as you can't keep it, keep it in the water, get it unhooked, and let it go. It's that simple. It's it's pretty easy. Part, part of that class, you said proper handling. Does it give you identification markers and tells you how to ID some of those sharks? Because I wouldn't know the difference between right. half of them you just said. So Yeah, I mean, black tips, duskies, sandbar sharks, a lot of them look very similar. And people people struggle with fish ID to begin with. I mean, you and I look at a, a bluegill and a, you know, a pumpkin seed, and we know a bluegill and a pumpkin seed, where some people go, oh, that's a bluegill. And... Yes and no. Same family, but not. Yeah. Not the same. It's the same thing with sharks, only there's more species of shark than there are bluegill. So, and some of them only get so big. Again, it's one of those things where you have to do some studying, read through the books, read through the pamphlets. There's FWC's got a pretty good website where you can go and read all about the different species of sharks and learn how to identify them. And you said, <clears throat> is it mandatory? It is mandatory. Okay. You kind of said it didn't sound mandatory when you were talking about it. So if it's mandatory and you, what happens if you catch a shark on a popping rig? We, there's nothing and, you can do about no, it. There's nothing. But, and, and then they're not expecting that. It, it, when they see a guy out on the, out on the beach with a big rod and reel set up, they're going to look at it and go, okay, we know he's fishing for sharks. We know, you know, bigger setup like that, he's fishing for bigger game fish. We're going to assume that he's fishing for game for, for sharks. We're going to go check him out. Hopefully he's got all the right gear. Hopefully he's taken the class, and hopefully he bought his permit or got his permit. So you got to treat it as as that. Sure. Now you only have to take that class once, kind of like a uh, hunter safety year. Not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of course. No, every every year, every year you go down, they want you to take it again. And I don't think okay. it's a bad thing, especially if, like, you don't know your shark species. I think it's a great refresher, and honestly, it doesn't take very long—forty-five minutes online if, at the most, unless they change something, which they could. Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. I would have never known about that either. I would have figured out looking at what licenses I had to buy and stuff. But so it's a great little tip if you want to actually target sharks. Is that the only species you have to get a special permit for? Uh, it is not. There, depending on the area of Florida you're in, like where I'm going, they almost never see snook. But there are parts of Florida where you gotta get a permit for snook. Um, there's, you know, regulations on some of the other game fish like redfish. You're allowed one redfish a day. It has to be in the slot of 18 to 28 inches. If it's too small or too big, it's got to go back. Um, black drum are the same way. I don't know offhand what exactly the black drum size limit is. I want to say it's probably something similar to the reds, but they don't catch a ton of black drum there. Sure. So do your homework regardless wherever you're going. Yes. Make sure you get all the rules and regs down. Yep, exactly. All right, so now that we're on the beach, we got 150 rods out. What are you putting? <laughs> what What are you putting on? Well, I know we touched a lot on tackle, but you'll you'll be coming from Wisconsin, making the drive down there. Yeah. What do you bring? Where it's not everything you own, like I would know what to bring. I'd literally put every tackle box I could in the truck and head down there. What can you guide people to bring? And what can you tell them to just <clears throat> keep at home? What do they not need? Yeah, I mean, you don't need all the tackle boxes. I mean, if you want to really keep it simple, you can go right to the tackle shop and buy some rigs. You know, you can talk to the tackle shop people and, and get the lowdown on what rigs are working. Double dropper rigs or the Bruno rig, float rigs, whatever whatever the locals call them. But for practical purposes, because Chip was on, the Bruno rig, which is a double dropper with floats and usually anywhere from a number, we'll say a number two to a two-aught circle hook. They want you using circle hooks, not octopus hooks, circle hooks just because it it increases the chances of the fish survival. And that mm-hmm. is another thing with the shark fishing is you must have circle hooks. They cannot be offset octopus hooks. They have to be circle hooks, so they guarantee you know, the best chance of the, the shark getting hooked in the corner of the mouth, not down in the guts. Sure. It ensures their survival. It's the same thing with every fish on the Gulf. They would, they want to see you using circle hooks, plain and simple. But to get back to the beach, again, double dropper rigs work great. That's probably one of the easiest and most common thing you're going to find out in tackle shops and see people using that kind of have an idea or have to talk to people at the tackle shop. But if you had say a, a Plano 3700 and you, that was, that was the size of the box that you want to contain, maybe able to throw it in a backpack like I'm going to do. If you had a couple of bags of hooks, you know, various sizes, like we just talked about, the, we'll say the size two to two aught. You had some like walleye pill floats, like for Lindy rigs. Mm-hmm. You had a roll of twenty pound monofilament or twenty pound fluorocarbon, whichever one you want to use. Both work. They have their pros and cons, and we don't need to discuss that now. It's a whole other episode. Whole another episode. You could tie your own double dropper rig just by simply YouTubing it. I got a little bit further down into it by building my own rig board. There's plenty of videos on how to do that i have more rigs than i know what to do with now 
because I had a big roll of 20 pound mono and I had a roll of 20 pound fluoro and I had snaps and swivels and ordered hooks and all that other fun stuff. You went to town doing arts and crafts. I did. I did arts and crafts hour and <clears throat> I built up a bunch of rigs with different colored floats and different colored beads and, and just went to town on it and rolled them up and put them in little plastic sandwich bags. And I've got a little, a little envelope full of them. I can pick and choose whatever ones I want. So you bring in any artificial lures, crankbaits, topwaters, anything like that, or are you strictly doing what what I like Chip said too, not to bounce all around, but no. said if you think of it as catfishing, you'll catch fish down there. I don't see myself throwing any sort of artificial hard plastics, you know, whatever kind of lures. I have catfishing. Yeah, I have dabbled in it and honestly I have not had a ton of success throwing artificials. There's probably days out there where, you know, people that are local, they go out, we'll say, two, three times a week. They know where certain fish are on the beach, and maybe they see them at the right hour where they're coming up and chasing bait fish into the shallows. They can get away with throwing, like, a Cast Master Spoon or a Rapala X-Wrap or, you know, like a, a, a boot tail minnow, some kind of soft plastic on a, on a swim jig head. Swim jigs catch everything, so you can just the same ones you're using for walleye and bass. You could probably throw out there and catch fish. Have I had success doing it? No. Shrimp has always been like the go-to shrimp with some kind of almost like Florida's version of gulp is fish bites. <laughs> <laughs> that that is like the cheat code. Like if you can't find a place that's got shrimp one you're you're really not doing a very good job of looking but two if you say you can't find shrimp or you don't want to mess with it or you're just going out for the first time and you didn't really realize you should have shrimp at very least you should have a packet of like sand flea or shrimp or um crab flavored fish bites i mean you can order them right online or whatever or stop at one of the little local bait shops on the way and and get fish bites and it's just a, it's a hyper-infused, it's like a gum almost. You cut it sure. to size, you cut a small piece, and you put it on the hook, and you throw it out there. And I've caught whiting, I've caught pinfish, I've caught, um, and pinfish make good bait. I've caught pompano on them, and sometimes you got to tip them with either a sand flea or a piece of shrimp. I can tell you fresh shrimp is always going to do better than than stuff that's been frozen and thawed and frozen and thawed a few times, but sometimes that surprises you too. I've caught some of my bigger pompano on stinkier shrimp. Hmm. Yeah, typically you're going to catch a ton of catfish on that, but if you have it in the right spot and the and the pompano are there, they'll eat it. Interesting. So you would you would suggest leaving all the crankbaits and stuff at home? Just go down there, experience what most of the guys down there do with you know set lining, basically. Exactly. You're set lining. You're you're throwing out your set lines and and waiting for a bite. So rigs with fish bites or something like that. Some sort of dead bait. If you're lucky enough to find sand fleas, and that could be another another topic, but I've, I've done it. I've gone out at night, just like we would search in night crawlers. I'm out in the surf with my headlamp on, and a kid sand a little kitty sand shovel, and I'm out there scooping fleas out of the surf, 
right where the water comes up and rolls up onto the onto the beach at night and there's sand fleas all over the place. I mean, you can look and just see the little V's in the in the water or in the in the sand where the water rushes up and comes back. And you go in there and start scooping and they're crawling around everywhere. So so that's interesting too. Obviously that's legal to do. Yes. Is there a, is there a limit or anything on that or is it whatever you f- take what you're going to use or I pretty much just take what I'm going to use. Like I, I think I caught that for that first night. I caught enough for four days worth of fishing. Little did I know, um, but I was able to keep them alive by one keeping them cold and don't keep them super wet. Keep a little sand in the container, and you have to rinse them. So every day I would go out, I'd empty the water out of the container, put fresh seawater back in it, just enough in there to keep them wet, not have them swimming in it. The same. Okay. Yeah, and the same thing goes for uh, a few of the other baits that they catch out there. Like if you're a, you were get lucky and find some fiddler crabs to catch and keep, a lot of things eat those too. Shrimp, you know, if they're if they're uh, any kind of shrimp that swims in water, they got to have water over the top of them. And this year, I'm going to bring my little Frable uh, insulated bait cooler with the aerator in it, in case I do end up catching some shrimp somehow. Hmm. Do you do you do that cool looking throw net? You know, throw bait fishing net thing or no? I do not have a cast net. I looked at it and go, that thing's like sixty, seventy, eighty bucks. I can buy a lot of bait for that for the little bit I'm down there. Sure, it'd be cool because I've had it where I've had a ton of croakers or or pinfish around. You know, you can see them darting around in front of you, and I could have thrown a cast net and probably had enough to fish for a week. <laughs> but it's not feasible. I mean, it's easier to go out there and, you know, scale down your presentation. You can catch your own bait fish using that smaller rod, lighter line, um, and just t- smaller hooks and just put a little piece of shrimp or a, f- a fish bite on it, and you can catch croakers and and uh, and pinfish to be able to throw on your redfish rods. It's hmm. good to know. Yeah. Now, now are we, while we're on the beach – Obviously, you don't just run the butt of the rod into the sand. We talked a little bit about rod holders. Um, do you have, I thought you said you had your own. You made your own out of PVC. Yeah, um, inch and a half or two-inch PVC. It, it's pretty simple and basic, and it's kind of redneck looking. But for the practical purpose, if you're not catting, you're not chasing real big fish, those those work fine. If you're going to step into something where you're, you know, you're going to be trying to catch bigger bigger reds or sharks, <laughs> You almost want to step into an aluminum one that's, you know, one, there's more pressure on it so it, it can hold in the sand better. Um, it doesn't tip over better. It doesn't get pulled out as easily as or, or break because I've seen some pretty interesting uh, situations where a guy's got a, you know, a 50-wide conventional reel with 100-pound or 200-pound test mono on it and shark hits it and runs, and he's got the drag set too high, and that rod, they've got that pole so far in, or that rod holder so far in the sand that it, it'll actually shatter the rod holder. It'll oh, really? Shat- it'll shatter PVC. So, <laughs> one, you want to keep your drag loose enough, so if you do get a, a big hit, it doesn't either rip it out of the out of the sand or break it. you got to have just enough give. So with that being said, is there a technique for what angle you put that in the ground? Which angle you want the rod? You want to tip towards the water, away from the water, straight up and down? When I does it matter? 
for me, it hasn't mattered. Now, somebody might tell you that, you know, you should be 10 degrees to the, you know, towards the ocean. Another person might like running theirs further back at, straight up. I don't know. I usually run mine just at a slight angle towards, and that's about it, or straight up. That's typically how I run mine. Okay. And then this may be a dumb northern question. I know you're on the beach. I know it's a gradual taper. Do you have nets, or do you just pull them up on the beach? Nope. I, I beach them right up there. I let, them, you know, I let the waves carry them in. You know, you can, it's one of those things where you got to get out there and do it to figure it out. Like if you're fighting a fish and the waves are going back because they're pulling back and the fish wants to go back, you don't want to put too much pressure on them, especially if you've been fighting it for a while or if you realize it's on there and maybe it's been on there a while, it's going to wear a hole in its lip. Sure. So you kind of, you work with the waves and get your fish in. Once it's up into the surf, it's still not over yet. Pull it up a little bit further away from the water line because <laughs> they will unhook and they will make their way back if you're too far away. Sure. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> from experience. From I see. experience. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's a nice starting point. Actually, it's more than a starting point. It gives a lot of good information that you don't have to be overwhelmed to go down south to fish. No. You got 80% of the stuff here may have to invest in some different sinkers and, you know, different ways to tie in some, some leaders up and some, you know, rigs up, but yeah. pretty, pretty similar to fishing up here. I don't think it's, you know, when you think of surf fishing, think of the ocean, you think you need $500 reel, $500 rod, all the custom stuff for ocean, a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, there is. I mean, you can go anywhere from, you know, a, we'll call it a $60 new cheap reel that can hold about 300 yards of whatever material you want to cast with a seven foot to we'll say eight foot six nine foot rod for steelhead would get the job done some pvc sand spikes some shrimp a tackle box with a handful of very basic terminal tackle parts swivels snap swivels you know the crane swivel type some weights. They could be pyramids. You could invest in the, the nicer Sputniks. You don't have to right away, but pyramids will get you going. You can go any catfish section of Walmart or wherever and pick those things up. They're not expensive. Um, a cooler, ice, an umbrella probably wouldn't be the worst. Some cold drinks. Fishing license. Fishing license, <laughs> which, by the way, for Florida – a seven-day license to go fish the ocean is 30 bucks. Why would you not? Yeah, it's a no-brainer. It's cheap. And what you're going to find, like, even when you go, I remember going out to Montana, going, I'm going to get a fishing license. It was literally probably around the same price, 30 to $40 for a seven-day license, and you can go fish and experience a different place aside from home. Yeah. And it's nice because this is kind of that weird weather, you know, ice is kind of going off and, you know, walleye hasn't really cranked up yet and steelheads, you know, steelheads run, browns will be in the rivers, but it's that weird like transition time. If you got any time or vacation, you can get out of town and experience fishing in a different part of the country, basically. Yeah. I mean, let's just face it. 
right now we're thinking warm thoughts. <laughs> that we are. All right. Well, I think that kind of covers it, at least for this episode anyway. Works for me. I learned a lot. Well, good. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see ya.